0: have enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend, and I also want to just encourage you, if you know anyone who has a loved one who gave the ultimate sacrifice, that's what Memorial Day is all about, trying to remember them and what a great blessing that is for us, for our country. So reach out to someone and let them know you love them and you're praying for them if you know that they've lost a loved one uh, on this Memorial Day. I uh, want to let you know that I've been praying and going door to door and doing evangelism, and I just wanted you to see the fruits of my efforts. All these young people here, thank y'all for coming just as I invited you. Now, this is, the, uh, this is the Pine Cove City counselors who are here this week to invest in your children and about 140 families' children from our community who will bring their children here. So, y'all give them a hand. Glad you're here. Awesome, awesome to have you here this week. We look forward to all that God's going to do, and it's going to be a lot of fun as well. So we are studying the book of 2 Samuel, and we are at chapter 14. We're actually going to dip a little bit back into 13. You're like, no, let's get past chapter 13. It's horrible. I know. We're going to look at our failures. Uh, I thought about this. Today we're going to look at the failure of David as a father. The only good news about this message is that today is not Father's Day. You're welcome. On Mother's Day, I preached the sin of David and Bathsheba. It was the best Mother's Day ever. I don't know how, but somehow we pulled that one off. And so thankfully today is not Father's Day as we look at David's failure as a father. But the good news is when we get into chapter 14, we're going to see God's faithfulness over against David's failure. And what we're going to see that God does in this a little bit confusing chapter is God intervenes, God acts when David isn't, and what God does is says, let me show you my faithfulness so that God's faithfulness moves David into faithfulness. And that's what I pray happens today, is that we are reminded of God's faithfulness towards us and that that moves us from failure to faithfulness. Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we can all relate to the struggle of knowing that we have failed, seeing the consequences of our failure. But Lord, as we see how gracious you are to be faithful to us in our failures, would you move us to faithfulness? We ask this by the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So as I looked at this text, I was reminded of that day that we were at the hospital with our firstborn, and my wife had a very difficult delivery, and so she was literally quite out of it. And so there I am, first dad thinking this is normal, not really even realizing that her out of it was not normal. And so they bring this little baby into our room. They wheel it in on a cart, and then they leave. And I'm like, "Wait, where are y'all going?" What are you doing? You don't realize I don't have a clue. And you're giving me this child, and this child's life is in my hands and her hands, and she's out of it. And I'm like, what is this stuff in this diaper? It's the weirdest stuff I've ever seen in my entire life. And I knew that moment, this is not going to go well. Somehow she survived. And the next moment I remember, because I think I blacked out from that point on was us walking home, Dana and I, into the steps of our home with this newborn child into 552 Ockley, and we get into the house, and we look at each other, and we're like, why did they give us this child? We have no clue, and we have no, where is the paper? Shouldn't they have sent us some instruction manuals or something? And somehow the child lived, and so we raised this child, and, and when I look back over my life, I look at how clueless I was as a father. And how much I failed as a father. And in all seriousness, I am shocked how much my wife had to teach me, in all seriousness, had to teach me how to engage with my children. You would think that would come normal. It it didn't. And I feel myself to be kind of the person that if anybody would find that natural, I would because that's my nature. But it didn't. She had to teach me to engage. She had to say, hey, there's something going on at start at preschool. There's an Easter bonnet parade and this Easter bonnet hat. And I'm like, really? And she's like, you want to be there? And I was like, I want to be there. I do want to be there, and so I would go, and, and, and I would learn to enjoy these things, and she would guide me and say, you know, this is a big deal. You're going to regret it if you're not there, and I will, yeah, okay, I'll make room for that, and, and by the way, you're their soccer coach. I am? Yes, you're going to coach their team. Okay, and I see some soccer players here today that I coached their whole life, and it became the greatest joy to do, but I had to be taught to engage, and I failed miserably many times, but I engaged, I got involved, and some of the greatest teaching moments that some of my best teaching for my children came as I kind of cowered back down into the bedroom and, and apologized for my failures and asked for their forgiveness and said, I need your forgiveness, I punished you when I was angry, I spoke harshly, I shouldn't have said those things, and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And I taught them about Jesus' forgiveness. And, and so in my failures, I can see God's faithfulness, many times through a faithful wife. And so today I pray that you see that as well, because I know you're going to think about your failures And I pray that we don't stay there, that we get past that, we accept that, we own our failures, and then we say, but God is faithful so that he moves us into faithfulness. Let's begin by considering David's failings. We're going to dip back into verse chapter 13, and I think what we're going to see is the greatest failure seems to be David simply checked out. I think David disengaged. I, I can't guarantee it, but I think when we look at chapters 13 and 14, and I've had other commentaries see the same thing, and so I feel like we're on the right track here, that, that chapter 13 and 14 as a whole, you kind of go, what is David doing about these things going on in his family? David's failings become pretty much he checked out maybe he felt guilty about his sin with bathsheba and he felt disqualified as a dad to do his job or maybe he was i mean he was he was king after all running the whole kingdom maybe he just said too busy at work i'll have my people deal with it or perhaps he just leaning in Getting engaged with the children and the family is hard, and I just don't feel like it. I think we can all relate to the challenge of the simple failure of disengaging, checking out. Let's take a look, closer look at David's failings, dipping back in chapter 13, picking up in verse 20. We've already read, but by this time in the chapter, that David previously had sinned with Bathsheba and this Sin was having terrible consequences on his family. They were repeating his sins, committing almost the exact sins that their father had committed. And then David's son committed an egregious sin against his daughter, Tamar. In verse 20, it says this. It says, so after that, Tamar lived a desolate woman where? In her brother Absalom's house. Wait a minute. Her dad's the king. Her dad has all the resources. Why is she at her brothers? When King David heard all of these things that had gone down, he was very angry. And he moved in, and he engaged, and he took care of her. No, it doesn't say any of that. It just says he was mad, he was upset. But it doesn't tell us that he does anything. And so that's kind of your first clue of, okay, well, did he he just not tell us about what he did? I think he just didn't engage. He got angry. He didn't get involved and take care of Tamar. And so Absalom had to step up and take care of Tamar. And this begins an unraveling. As we saw last week, Absalom was filled with rage. He's... Furious with Amnon, his brother, for what he had just done to their sister. Dad's not stepping in, so Absalom says, well, someone's got to help. And so he takes care of Tamar, and he's just eaten up with it. His just the, 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 the anger and resentment and hatred is just growing in his heart against his brother. And it says in chapter 13, verse 26, then Absalom starts to scheme to try to get Amnon off to the side where he can kill him. So he says, Hey, Dad, why don't you all come, you and all the family, why don't you all come to the sheep-shearing party? Because you know sheep-shearing parties. Those are fun, right? (laughs) And so he's having a sheep-shearing party, and he asks Dad and the brothers to come, knowing that Dad, he ain't going to come. He never comes. And so the scheme falls just like he likes, and David says, No, I'm not going to come. And Absalom says, Verse 26, well, if not then, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king says to him, wait a minute, something's up. Why should your brother go? Why would you ask your brother to go? So it seems like David is aware that Absalom's trying to scheme and do something, but he's not willing to really engage. So verse 27, Absalom pressed him until finally he let Amnon go. So it seems a picture of a dad that's just indulging his kids, whatever, just do what you want to do. So Absalom pressed him until Amnon and all the king's son went with him. Then verse 28 says, Then Absalom did what he wanted to do. He commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. So they killed him. Perhaps David could have prevented this. We don't know for sure. But I think the picture is developing of a dad who's checked out. He's mad about things. He doesn't like what happened in the family. But he doesn't lean in and, and go to Amnon and say, what were you thinking? And deal with it. He doesn't go to Absalom and man, I think you're scheming. I think you're letting anger build up. I think you're resenting your brother. We've got to deal with this. Sin is lurching at the door, disciple his his children, teach them the word of God. He's not doing that. David didn't take care of Tamar. David didn't address Amnon's sin. David didn't say no to Absalom. And so what happens? Absalom kills. Absalom rises up in the field and kills his brother. The wording is very similar to Cain rising up and killing Abel. And it's intentional. So verse 38 says what David did after his brother, his son, kills his other son. What does David do? It says, And the king also and all his servants wept bitterly. He got mad. He grieves. He weeps. As Absalom flees. Absalom flees to Talmai to the son of Amud, king of Gesher. So he's going to Gesher. David mourns. But what does he do? He just mourns. He gets mad. He grieves. He cries for his son day after day. And what's happening with Absalom? Absalom fled. The author says it again, not once but twice. David's in activity, and Absalom and the distance between them is growing further and further. So Absalom fled, went to Gesher And he was there for three years. And this next verse is hard to translate. It says in ESV, as I'm reading now, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. It could also be translated, The the spirit of the king ceased going out to Absalom. I think that might be where I would have gone with it. It seems like the king said, I'm done. I'm done with Absalom. So David does nothing as his family is falling apart. It's a picture of David's failings. In a commentary, Thomas and Greer summarize very well what's going on in the family. It says, David's family is in shambles at this point. But each successive tragedy is preventable. Had David been more involved, he could have prevented Amnon from acting on his perverse desires. Had David gone to Tamar after her assault, he could have prevented Absalom from avenging his sister's death. Even now, with all this death and destruction in the rear view, David could still stem further damage if he would have reached out to Absalom. He could prevent him from descending further into darkness. But sadly, once again, David does nothing. He's disengaged. I'm out. He's checked out. He's at the office. He's focusing on work. He doesn't lean in. And I think that's the challenge for us today. It's painful relationships are messy families are hard and things happen we fail others fail us we sin against them they sin against us and if we just don't deal with it these temptation is to just let this calloused heart grow harder and harder and not deal with it and resentment and anger and hardness grows and the distance just keeps growing I think God is trying to help us to say, as hard and painful as it is, lean in. Engage. It's hard, messy, it's painful. You're going to have to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. And you're going to have to say, I forgive you. But David fails to do that. And his family just is disintegrating before our very eyes. In David's inaction, though, in David's failures, thankfully, you get to chapter 14, and we see God's faithfulness. This chapter is a bit confusing, but it's a picture of God's faithfulness. Let me tell you kind of what goes on. I think by midway through this part of the message in the first service, I had them so confused and discombobulated that I almost walked away. I literally said in the second ser- first service, there was a couple over here that I know really well, and I said, I, I think... If it's, it's probably a little bit confusing, and they both went, uh-huh. Like, I have no idea what you're saying. So I'm going to try to do a better job here today. So God uses Joab, which is David's military captain, and a wise woman, is the way she's described, from Tekoa, to take action. God is using them to intervene to restore David's family because David is checked out. And the way that they intervene is through kind of some scheming. and They're going to work through this scheming. And so it's actually, though, a picture of God's faithful intervention to bring redemption and restoration to a family in the midst of their crazy messiness and failures. And that's the good news. So let's look at God's faithfulness beginning in verse 1 as Joab, David's captain, makes a plan. Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart, I would say, ceased going out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. And that word wise, I've told you before, it could be translated wise, shrewd, or crafty. And it oftentimes depends on the context. And so this even kind of let us go, wait, is she really a wise woman when they're being shrewd and crafty? And I would say, ultimately, I think God shows us here is a wise woman God is using to intervene into David's life. And here's what Joab said to this wise woman. Pretend to be a mourner and put on your mourning garments. Don't anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So at first it's hard to tell whether she's wise. I think she is. But Joab is telling this woman what to do. And he tells her to make up a story. To tell the king about two sons. It's all a fictitious story. But to tell the king, hey king, I've got these two sons. And one son rose up and killed the other son. And now the people, the rest of the family, are demanding that I give them my one remaining son. Because they want to punish him for taking his life. And then she's going to explain, but this is going to have terrible consequences on me and on my family. So in verse 7, she goes on to tell this story. She says, And now the whole clan has risen up against me, the servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. So do you understand what's going on so far? I don't see anybody going, I'm lost. All right. So they're saying... In the story, my son was guilty, deserves to die. They want to kill him, but, she goes on to say, but they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Pause there. So she's saying, if I let them get just penalty on my son, I'll have no seed, I'll have no family, our name will cease, there'll be no family dynasty. Y'all tracking with me? All right. So she's saying this to David, who's living that example. David's son has risen up and killed the other son, and he's doing nothing about it. So how does the king respond? What will the king do for this woman? The king said, if anyone says to you to bring the son, bring him to me, he shall never touch you again. If anyone messes with you, I'll handle it. I'll get involved. I'll take action. I'll deal with it. And then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God. That the avenger of the blood, that's another phrase that's back in Cain and Abel that we'll keep in mind, file that. That the avenger of blood, the ones who want to avenge the blood, that they kill no more and my son not be destroyed. And David said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So it's a picture of David intervening and protecting the son who has fled for his life because the avengers of blood are after him. It's exactly Absalom's story. And yet in this fictitious story this woman brings to him by God's grace, he says, well, I'll step in and I'll get involved and I'll protect the son. And so the woman turns the table on him, exactly like the prophet Nathan had done, turned the table on him and says, this is about you. And so in verse 12, then the woman said, Please let your servant, talking about herself, speak a word to my lord the king, talking about David. And he said, speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king actually convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. So God has used this wise woman to say, David, lean in. Get involved. Quit sitting back in your anger and in your sin against your son. Do something for the sake of God's people, for the sake of your family. Quit denying your responsibility. And God continues to speak to David through this wise woman. She says, we must all, verse 14, we must all die. We're all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God, God will not take away life. And God even devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Do you hear that beautiful description of the faithfulness of God? God will devise a way to make sure that the banished sinner, the banished murderer, the guilty one who deserves to die, the adulterer, the sinner, everything, all these sinful characters we've been identifying with, she says God devises a mean so that that banished one, fleeing for his life, guilty and deserves death, so that that one will not remain an outcast. So do you see God is is bringing this woman to say, think about the faithfulness of God and how he has devised a way to pursue you in your sin, in your failures, to bring reconciliation, to bring restoration through the blood of Jesus Christ Think about how faithful God has been and let that be the motivation for you to lean in and seek restoration and reconciliation with that one who, yeah, they may be guilty, but so were you. David sniffs out the scheme. He says, something's fishy. I I recognize something's up here. And he says in verse 19, Is this the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, As surely as you live, I think a little flattery here, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or the left hand anything from my lord the king who has said, It is your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in my mouth, in the mouth of your servant. But he did it in order to change the course of things He did it for you to change. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And then the king said to Joab, Joab, I grant you this. Go bring the young man Absalom back. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and he paid homage and he blessed the king. So God is faithfully working in David's life with his own faithfulness, saying, I went to seek you as you fled, and I brought you back. Now you need to act the same way. Reach out to Absalom. And and we see this process of healing and reconciliation starting to take place in their family that's been unraveling because of sin But we we still have a ways to go. He says, you can come back to Jerusalem. And so in verse 28, though, it says, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. The king is like, you can bring him back to Jerusalem, but don't bring him around me. So it's progress. Still a lot of heart work needs to go on. And now, if you keep reading, you can't make these stories up. Absalom is sitting in Jerusalem. He hadn't been to his dad's house in two years. He's longing to be restored with his dad. He calls Joab, his commander, Joab, come here. I need to see my dad. Joab blows him off. He probably went to David. This is not in your Bible. I'm just imagining what happened. Joab probably went to David. and said, hey, man, Absalom keeps wanting to see you, and he's like, man, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to deal with him. And so Joab ignores him. He's... Stone cold. He's just not going to respond to his text at all. He's blowing him off. And Absalom's like, Come on, Joab. I need to see my dad. We got to settle this. We got to reconcile. Nothing. He ghosts him, totally ghosts him. So what does, jo- what is, what does he do? Absalom. Now, Absalom has a full head of hair. He's like, Rupert, Rupert over here with the mullet. I mean, he has got a full head of hair. They talk about it. He's got so much hair. Once a year, he cuts it and how much it weighs. But you watch. It is not good to have that much hair. The dude gets hung in a tree next week because he has so much hair. You can't make this stuff up. Anyway, this guy with the mullet is standing over there dying to see his dad. His dad won't pay him any attention, so he sets the fields on fire. And Joab finally comes and puts the fire out. What are you doing? He says, I want to see my dad. Okay. So finally, Absalom says, Joab, let me go into the presence of the king. And in verse, he says, and if there's guilt in me, listen to the change of heart. If there's guilt in me, then let him put me to death. In verse 33, then Joab went to the king and he told him, and he summoned Absalom. And so he came to the king, he bowed himself on his face to the ground before his dad, the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So God graciously, mercifully restored Absalom and his dad. They are both terribly guilty. Failures, plenty to go around, plenty to share. The only question was will God intervene? And we see God has been faithful. In the midst of all their failures. It's exactly what we see in Genesis 4. Cain raises up in the field and kills Abel. Cain says, the avengers of the blood are going to kill me. What does God do? God says in verse 15 of chapter 4 of Genesis, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him. Similar words that he says, David says to this woman. Why does the author want us to think of Genesis 4, and then of David. Why does the author intentionally want to draw our mind back to those other texts? Because the author wants us to track with him and say, God intervened with Cain and he protected him though he was guilty. God says, I will be gracious and merciful to this guilty sinner. God intervened with David and Absalom, though they were guilty. God intervened and said, I will be gracious and merciful to this guilty sinner. And then we should say, God will do the same for you. That's why the author writes it that way, to say, The Bible wants you to know God is not changing. God is faithful. God's character is consistent. He is faithful to his promises. He told David, your seed will be the seed, the line, the dynasty, the family from which the Messiah will come. Jesus Christ came. He kept his promises. God was faithful. And that Jesus came and he pursued you as you were running for your life because you were guilty of sin. And he said... I forgive you. I want to restore you. I've been faithful to you. He died. You place your guilt on him. And he says, it's as if you never sinned. And he says, I've been faithful to you. Now let that faithfulness that I've shown you move you to be faithful to those you aren't reconciled with. So God is telling you today, who do you need to seek reconciliation with? Is it your dad? Is it your child? Is it your friend? Trust me, I know we all make a mess of things, and our sin and relationships are a mess. But humble yourselves as Christ did for you. Seek reconciliation. And let God begin to do a work. In your family. Father God, we pray for the grace we need to be humble like Christ, to to seek reconciliation. Help us to be humble enough to admit that we are part of the problem. Help us to look to your faithfulness, your grace, your kindness, your glory, your faithfulness to us. Lord, help us to be motivated by that, to go and offer forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness, to seek reconciliation with those with whom we are at odds. Lord, we want to do it for the good of your family, for the good of your name, for your glory, and for the grace that we need. Lord, we pray you'll help us be faithful. In Christ's name we pray.